Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Number two of your Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. For the last uh, couple of years, Jim Coogan has been a regular guest on the show from Dwyer and Coogan, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan, as we like to say, and talking. I'm trying to explain. Uh, I always say, uh, how could this possibly be legal as we talk about uh, various miscarriages of justice that are apparently perfectly legal? And Jim, you've become a a specialist, our show specialist, on the interesting uh, machinations of one William Barr, the attorney general. So I thought it'd be a good idea uh, to close down the year by going through a list of sort of uh, Bill Barr's greatest hits, his greatest sins. Uh, as attorney general. So you up for that? Yeah. Hey, Ben, nothing like, uh, nothing says the holidays and warming everyone's hearts like the ways that Bill Barr's influences changed our perceptions of justice in America, right? Absolutely. Nothing like uh, Christmas. All families should uh, have their Christmas meal talk about Bill uh, Barr's sins. By the way, so I'm really... A part of me, I didn't tell you I would do this, but we spent so much of the day uh, talking about, before I make the transit in the bar, I've got to ask you your thoughts on what's going down with um, uh, Mayor uh, Lori Lightfoot and the way uh, Flessner, Mark Flessner, the city's corporation council, stepped down. Uh, you've been, you're a plaintiff's lawyer. So you make your li- living suing corporations, essentially, uh, on behalf of individuals. To me, when I saw the reaction that Lori Lightfoot had, I've said this on the show many times, uh, to uh, Anjanette Young's lawsuit, it just seemed like your classic, traditional, corporate defense lawyer tactic just undercut the plaintiff, bury them under all kinds of paper so that they lose steam, jack up their legal bills, uh, just sap them of their will to continue and then they'll capitulate or a judge will f- eventually throw the case out. That, now she's sobbing and swearing up and down that she didn't know anything about it. Blah, blah, blah. But Jim, it, it seemed to me one-on-one out of the playbook. Am I misinterpreting this thing or what's your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, I think it's a fair interpretation. You have to understand that, in my experience, and this is not just with my own cases, but in everything I've ever observed in this business, it really doesn't matter how meritorious or how clear cut 
a violation of whether it's injury law, you know, causing somebody's injury, or in, in this case, it's more of a civil rights, but still, uh, you know, somebody suing for damages to the person because of the improper execution of the laws or improper action while undercover under the color of law, which is what the officers were. Um, there, you could find me the most clear-cut set of facts in the world, and I could find you a press release or an initial statement or something from the company, its chief legal counsel, or their defense attorney that is dismissive or deriding uh, of something about the plaintiff's case. And that same case may settle a year later or go to trial and be vindicated with a gigantic verdict. But somewhere along the way, there was some kind of dismissal that the claim was without merit, that the plaintiff was wrong in bringing it, that, oh, well, look at all these other things that the plaintiff didn't do or did do, or um, no matter how innocent they might be. And listen, it's, it's one of the principles of law that a plaintiff, if they are somehow contributory to the thing that happened to them to cause an injury, that can impact whether or not they can recover at all. But <laughs> I, unless there's something that they're going to spring on all of us, I cannot really fathom what that would be in this poor woman's case. Yeah, absolutely. And yet uh, the position of the city was, the city did nothing wrong. <laughs> Let's bury her. Uh, but uh, all right, we'll move on from that one because I could probably go on for another half hour about that case. Let's get back to Barr. I have a list, a cheat sheet that you sent me. Uh, you did a great job. We'll just take it from t- I don't know if this is meant to be uh, in any kind of order or was it stuff that just popped into your head about things that Bill Barr did? That like I'm not, I don't know if like the order suggests that one, like an ascending order from uh, not so bad to horrible or, uh, but uh, we'll just take it uh, point by point. Uh, and the uh, number one on the list is history as unitary executive proponent and cover up general, a nickname from the great New York Times columnist, conservative columnist from the 90s and the olds, William Sapphire. So get into that history of unitary executive proponent. What do you mean by that? And let's note that William Sapphire was a conservative political columnist. Okay. This was a nickname that he came up with, but um, yeah, I, I don't remember if I did it specifically to be flowing in a particular order, but that concept frames everything about what the justice department has been. And I'm not talking about with respect to most of the regular criminal prosecutions or their civil defense, but just as it relates to the president and the things that Bill Barr has done with respect to the president. Because we're talking about an organization that has all kinds of other functions that I don't think have been materially impacted or for the most part materially impacted by the way that Bill Barr has done his job or the way even that Jeff Sessions did his job in his tenure. Um, Most of this relates to how they've dealt with and acted as either running interference with or just fully acting like the defense attorneys for the president, which is not in the remit of the attorney general. But the notion that Bill Barr believes very strongly in this unitary executive theory is what makes the rest of this happen. What I mean by that is Barr has a very strong belief in basically the maximalist widest birth of power for the president. I mean, if I think if he had his druthers, the president's power would essentially be unchecked, wouldn't be checked by the courts, wouldn't be checked by Congress in any way that wasn't explicitly 
prescribed in the Constitution. Um, the president would be able to, to destroy any documents that they wanted to, initiate any investigations that they wanted to, shut down any investigations that they wanted to. And that's just with respect to legal things. I mean, his expansive view of presidential power includes anything and everything, really. I mean, that, and that's why the rest of this happens. Every other thing that Bill Barr has done in the service of Donald Trump or to insulate the Donald Trump White House from any legal liability or some of the probable, some of the possible fallout that could have happened during impeachment. We'll get to that. All of these things are because he believes that, and I guess I should probably qualify this, a Republican president should have any and all power that they want. Um, that's been his fundamental viewpoint from the beginning. So that's why it goes all the way back to in 1991 to 92 when he was working in the same position for Dad Bush, George H.W. Bush, uh, his administration lasting from 1989 through, it's been about 28 years. Uh, it was Christmas of 1992 was, the, was when Bill Barr famously uh, advised Bush on what he should do to get rid of the wolves that were at his door because he was implicated in Iran-Contra in a wide-ranging investigation that had been going on for six long years up to that point. Lawrence Walsh was the special counsel appointed to investigate whether or not people in the Reagan White House broke the law. And they were, they were very specifically and pointedly looking for George H.W. Bush's journal because it would have had information in there that indicated his involvement with a very overtly illegal uh, operation that was being run out of the White House. There had already been four con convictions, uh, and, and there was a trial that was supposed to begin in January for another, let's call it, co-conspirator. So when Bush looked for advice and he asked Barr, who was his attorney general at the time, Barr said, pardon everybody that you have to pardon, and that's the way that you'll make sure that you don't get investigated and you shut this whole thing down because then once you can shut down the co-conspirators, nobody's going to testify against Bush. And, you, and the Department of Justice or the special counsel would lose all his leverage. So uh, that's Jim, where Sapphire came up with the term from. Yeah, and it's um, it's really, uh, that was really well, uh, neatly summed up. Uh, you know, I'm very skeptical when it comes uh, to ju judicial philosophies, because as we've had this exchange in many instances uh, on the uh, on the show, I generally believe a judge or a lawyer comes up with a, a legal philosophy in order to support whatever outcome he wants, political outcome he wants. I, I was really surprised, for instance, that uh, you, they couldn't get more than two judges of the Supreme Court to bite on that cockamamie lawsuit out of Texas. They did get, uh, let's not forget, Alito and Clarence Thomas did make a comment that they would be willing to hear the case, not that they would going to issue an or had decided what their uh, position would be. So I, I don't believe them when they say that they have an underlying uh, philosophy. That said, is there an underlying legal philosophy or legal theory uh, that would support uh, Barr's unitary view of the world, or is it just something he concocts to save the neck of the president that he is uh, representing, even though as attorney general, he's not supposed to be representing him. Go ahead. Well, I mean, you can test it by examining whether or not he believes the same to be true when there's a Democrat in the White House. So 
you know, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what he's never been in a position to do something about that, where he was either investigating a democratic president because he thought that they overstepped their power or, you know, for example, if he had worked at as, as a state attorney general, if we had evidence that he'd had several times where he, instances where he'd sued the Obama presidency mm-hmm. or some agency as part of the Obama white house for abuse of their power in an expansive way that might undermine the notion that this is really a, a, an actual uh, philosophy about how the constitution should be interpreted rather than just an, an, a justification for his political views. But ultimately there, I mean, you can trace back this concept that the presidency should be more powerful all the way back to the Federalist Papers. I mean, that was one of the arguments that was at the foundation of the Constitution as, you know, what we rebelled and left uh, England over the question of how much of a tyrant the king could be and whether they were held accountable under the law. That was the one of the animating forces to uh, ignite the revolution in the first place. So there, that was the side of the group that were part of the Constitutional Convention that wanted to put restraints and checks and balances on the president would have been, would have argued against Bill Barr's interpretation. But there were definitely uh, folks who were in favor of a stronger president, mm-hmm. in favor of a wider amount of power under the presidency. And, you know, the, the interesting thing that's happened over the years, as you know, Ben, is there have been Democrat, uh, Democratic presidents like uh, FDR, who in their position as president have greatly expanded the powers of the presidency. I guess in FDR's instance, you might say he thought it was in the best interest of the country and not necessarily because he personally uh, was trying to abuse the law or abuse the powers of his office. Um, you know, they argue, there are definitely economists who would argue that we wouldn't have gotten out of the Great Depression the way we did if it wasn't for the expansion of federal jobs programs and uh, the, the expansion of the administrative state, that was all looking at the presidency as, as something bigger. And um, you know, so this isn't limited just to guys like Bill Barr, but generally speaking, he's also been very, he, he has excused obvious breaking of the law in service of this theory, like what we talked about with George H.W. Bush or with some of these examples with Donald Trump, where it really has nothing to do with the operation of the office, but rather excuses to protect the people in the office. Yeah, we'll move on to the list, but I just, to your last point, you see it uh, on the, the local level and the state level, the inconsistency all the time, because right now here in Illinois, uh, we have Republicans going to court uh, calling uh, J.B. Pritzker a tyrant for his executive orders to try to protect the the state uh, from the virus, from uh, COVID-19, the spread of COVID-19. And they say he's a tyrant. Uh, He overextended his uh, powers and his authority. uh, And he uh, did not give proper respect to the legislative process and the uh, separation of government. So, yes, your point as to the inconsistent application of this principle is on hand right now in the states of Michigan, Illinois, and with Wisconsin, and I'm waiting for Bill Barr 
uh, to weigh in on behalf of Governor J.B. Pritzker. Uh, and uh, I'm not holding my breath. All right, uh, we'll move on the list. Uh, this one is something I've talked a lot about on this show uh, and in my readers, uh, reader columns. Involved the Department of Justice in uh, the E. Jean Carroll defamation rape case uh, against President Trump. Pretty blatant uh, politicalization of the Justice Department, in my humble opinion. What's your thoughts? Well, there you have a private lawsuit for defamation against the individual Donald Trump. And very simply, and I think anybody listening to this, you don't have to have a legal background to understand the idea that if you just because you're an office holder and just because you might be the president of the United States does not mean that you're entitled to a government defense of lawsuits against you as a private citizen. Um, if you do something in your official capacity and you're being sued by the Illinois attorney general or by some environmental group or by some other advocacy group who is suing you for things that you're doing as official acts, well then it's naturally the position of the department of justice to step in and to defend those cases. That's what they do. Administrative lawsuits over the application of the law in different parts of the you know, immigration law or, or whatever else it might be. But here we had a case where, E. Jean Carroll has alleged that she was sexually assaulted and raped mm-hmm. by Donald Trump. And since that time, he, Trump has defamed her in her, in her allegations. Allegedly, she, he has defamed her by saying that she's making all of it up and that she's a liar. And so she sued him. Now, normally, that would mean that that's got nothing to do with the presidency. I mean, the, the alleged sexual misconduct happened years ago, long before pr- Trump was president. And so, therefore, it wouldn't have anything to do with any acts that he took as an official, the bar justification was that because Trump made the comments about E. Jean Carroll that she says are defamatory, that somehow he should therefore in, in, inject the Justice Department into this. So Trump already had his own private lawyers defending this case, but Barr sought to enter an appearance in the case and then was seeking under a, a, a basically some of the administrative and procedural rules that would govern the case that the case would be removed from that court and brought into federal court out of the state court where it was presently pending. So that was rejected. Mm-hmm. But just the notion that the, that the bar justice department tried to do it was novel. This kind of thing hadn't been done before and arguably should never have been done. Cause it's, it's, it's ultimately these kinds of things, they basically, they take away from the reputation and the integrity of the Justice Department, because if they're seen as just carrying water for the president, then they're not looked at as objective arbiters of mm-hmm. the law, prosecuting cases that should be prosecuted and defending cases against the government as they should be defended. Yes, this was very much a moment uh, in his uh, tenure as Attorney General Barr was carrying water for the president. And uh, my guess is, is that uh, once Biden takes control of the governor of the world, of the presidency, the Justice Department will pull back on its decision to defend Donald Trump. I cannot imagine in a million years, Jim Coogan, uh, the Biden having his uh, Justice Department or the Attorney General that he appoints, I should say, having the D- Department of Justice uh, defending Donald Trump, and then that case will proceed and let the chips fall where they may. Um, this one we talk so much about, Jim, and it seems like ancient history. Um, but it was such an important part of the Trump presidency. 
the undermined Mueller report with a dishonest mischaracterization. He successfully, Bill Barr, uh, undercut the Mueller report. There's been a book written about it, which I, I, I've been keep telling you, uh, Jim, I intend to read. One of the lawyers for uh, Mueller wrote a book, uh, which it's got great reviews. I've, um, I'm on a waiting list at the public library to get a copy of it. But uh, talk a little bit about uh, him undercutting the Mueller report. Yeah, I think you're talking about Andrew Weissman's book, right? Yes, Andrew Weissman's book, yep. Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, whether or not he had a political reason to disagree with the findings that the report ultimately made, the, the attorney general has no business stepping in front of an, an official United States government investigation into the serious matters that Robert Mueller and his special counsel's office was investigating to make a press release that would forever neuter the impact that the actual report would have once it was released. Uh, so, you know, because of the nature of the powers of the attorney general, Bill Barr had a lot of control over what was released to the public. He was the one who ultimately got to determine and did decide to release the rest of the report, even with the redactions that were in there. But before he released it, as every, people might remember, I think it was on a Friday afternoon, there was word that the report was complete. And here comes Barr with a one and a half page letter outlining what he, he I think used the term principal conclusions of the report, that there was no Russian involvement and that there wasn't sufficient invest or there wasn't any evidence of uh, the Trump administration and the White House covering up that involvement, which is blatantly false. That characterization is just false. If you look at the report itself, you, I think, are, and you and my law partner, Pat Dwyer, are two of the few people I know who have tried to read the entire thing, or maybe both <laughs> you know, he, he and Adam, I think you have too. But yeah. you don't need to read the whole report to know that that's false. Yeah. Executive summaries that are contained, just the headlines of the chapters outline exactly what is contained therein. A lot of details that don't necessarily matter on a day-to-day basis anymore, but calling those principal conclusions is is a false statement, and it, it created the impression that there is no evidence of any of these things, whereas the reality is the only reason that there wasn't a prosecution was that they couldn't do it. I mean, there, otherwise, I believe very strongly, this is a belief, this is my opinion, that Bob Mueller and his people would have referred Trump and many other people, even some I think who haven't been, referred them for prosecution based upon their involvement in what amounted to a massive conspiracy. I mean, that's what it is. It's a conspiracy to obstruct justice. Um, So that was a mischaracterization explicitly designed to allow for space between an an, an initial announcement that the country had been waiting for at the time, knowing the impact that it would have on the press and that it would lead people to think, well, okay, fine. Maybe, maybe ultimately this really isn't amounting to anything. So that by the time the actual documents come forward and the report is released, it just doesn't have the same punch. Yeah. And people aren't looking to, what does it actually say? Cause they've heard, you know, a, a two sentence recitation of a conclusion of a conclusion. And therefore, especially those who want it to say nothing, and wanted the report to fall like a like a phone book on the doorstep and mean nothing to anybody who wanted the, the president to appear to be exonerated, had the, the soundbite they needed. And the president, I think by that evening, was 
tweeting in all caps, total and complete exoneration. Yes. So that's absolutely not what the, yeah. what the report actually stood for. Yeah, no, uh, it helps set the tone for the political debate, uh, the fallout over the Mueller report. And you're right. I, I have a, an acknowledgement to make, uh, Jim. I did not read the um, Mueller report in its entirety. Uh, I had for the longest time at the Suntime studio where we used to do this show before the pandemic, a, the Washington Post's uh, bound copy of the uh, Mueller report. And what I had read from cover to cover <laughs> was the Washington Post introduction, which was a fascinating introduction. And then their, um, their, their like uh, bios of all the people, the relevant people in the story. So it was it, the, the crib sheet was really more interesting, I thought, than the Mueller report itself. So I have confession to make. Uh, maybe Pat Dwyer has been was a little more dutiful than I was uh, in the actual report. Confession time here in the Bendrowski show. Uh, interfered with impeachment subpoenas. Yes, we talked a lot about this over. Oh my goodness, the impeachment process against uh, Donald Trump, which was undermined by the way uh, he handled the Mueller report. And then interfered with impeachment subpoenas. Talk about that. Well, yeah, I mean, they, uh, the House, in their process, was allowed to subpoena records from the White House and from Trump about issues related to the letter and the call that uh, Donald Trump had made when he was trying to essentially carry out this uh, effort, this well, illegal effort, to use the powers of the presidency to get the Ukrainian president to announce an investigation into Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and um, Burisma. That, that was the subject of the impeachment itself, that the way that Trump phrased this request for a favor was an abuse of his power, that he had power over this Ukrainian president because of the United States aid that was being sent to the country. And, and, if anything, if, if Donald, I think we talked about it, and I may have made this point before, of the things that Donald Trump would understand about the nature of his office, he would understand that he has leverage over somebody like the Ukrainian president. So, you know, I, I think there's lots of things that he does not understand about his office or the powers of the office or the scope of his powers, but he knows when he's got leverage on somebody like that. So it wasn't an accident, and it certainly wasn't an innocent request when he asked, you know, to do us a favor, though, uh, with respect to this Hunter Biden Burisma situation. And when the House tried to get documents, they were stonewalled. Um, I mean, ultimately, one of the weaknesses of the impeachment process is that when a subpoena is issued to the White House from the House of Representatives requesting documents, they have, if, for example, if the White House refuses to participate, you, you certainly, as the House of Representatives, you can add that as another article to your articles of impeachment, yes. you know, that, to say that, okay, well, here's A, B, and C, how the president has violated the oath of office and abused the powers of the presidency, and D is disregarded and tossed in a shredder are subpoenas. Well, the problem is if you, putting aside whether you can use that as additional evidence of guilt, or an additional abuse of office. If you're going to actually get the documents, you need the Justice Department to, to actually enforce them. <laughs> Which, if the Justice Department's not interested in doing justice, you're going to have a hard time with. And that was the that was the role 
that Barr played in that process, that he was of no help to allow for the actual documentation of memos, of internal deliberations, and other things with, that may have occurred surrounding this, this phone call and the conversation and all of the, the communications to and from the Ukraine that, that would have possibly proven the Democrats' case uh, in the House of Representatives that Trump did abuse his office. Because as at the end of the day, one of the things that people probably learned or at least would have heard about during the impeachment process is you also don't just have one call between the president and the president of some other country. There's lots of things that lead up to that. There's mm-hmm. negotiations over the parameters of the conversation, things that are, you know, talking points that are exchanged between the two sides so that they each know where they're coming from. I mean, these are sensitive diplomatic matters that nobody wants to have screwed up. And the people who do these jobs, at least before the Trump administration, took them very seriously in terms of trying to do it the right way and not avoid some kind of international incident and keep the right kind of terms that are consistent with American foreign policy alive in those negotiations and those kind of sensitive discussions. So there would have been a lot of other evidence of the genesis of this thing, including probably the involvement of of Rudy Giuliani. But a lot of those documents weren't produced, and Lord knows where they ended up, because Bill Barr certainly saw himself as facilitating the defense of the president from this impeachment process. And that, again, is is not the job of the attorney general. Yes, uh, well put. And I could, before we move on, uh, the impeachment process failed to successfully remove Donald Trump from office. But from a political standpoint, I think it's pretty obvious that it contributed just to the general dissatisfaction that a majority of Americans had with Donald Trump uh, and uh, contributed to his defeat. I think that's pretty obvious to be said. So uh, when you just follow it to the the conclusion, Trump uh, won the battle but lost the war uh, in the matter of impeachment, my humble opinion. Anyway, I'm going to move over and hold to the end uh, his attitude toward Trump uh, and his rhetoric about electioneering and move on to Stone, Flynn, and Manafort. Oh, my goodness, these names. We talked so much over the last four years, (laughs) definitely about Flynn and Manafort. Uh, Roger Stone, the sentences, uh, and the interference just in general with uh, an attempt uh, to mete out some kind of punishment for the wrongdoing of these gentlemen. William Barr was right there on all three, uh, in all three cases, correct, Jim? Well, and that's why it's such a cozy thing to, to play all the greatest hits by, as we're uh, sitting here by the holiday hearth, right, Ben? I mean, these are the names that we've had to deal with for the last three years or at least yeah. the last two years. Um, yeah, I mean, look, you know, when at the end of the day, the thing that we started this conversation with is, is playing itself through right here. The, these guys, Paul Manafort uh, and Roger Stone in particular, are have been part of a Washington conservative establishment that isn't very far removed from Bill Barr for the last 40-something years or almost 50 years in uh, Washington, D.C. conservative politics. So his connection to those guys, were, were all, they were already manifest. But the reason why it's even worse here is the, the mo- one of the most clear-cut ways that you can tell that a government and a country have fallen into authoritarianism and a destruction of the rule of law and the republic and a democratic society 
is when the Justice Department is used to prosecute the leader's enemies mm. and protect the leader's friends. I mean, that's, that's one of the, you know, it's, it's like a line I've read about uh, Vladimir Putin when he took over, obviously a guy who knows how to manipulate the justice system in Russia because he came from their secret service agent or secret agency, the KGB. Um, it was justice or what's the, I think favors for my friends and justice for my enemies or something yeah. like that. So that's, you know, that's what this represents. And that's why it's such a, it's, you, you might think, well, what difference does it make? Roger Stone is just this, you know, goofy uh, p- conservative political character that's been around forever. And he's always been involved in dirty tricks. Who cares whether his sentence gets commuted? Well, it, I care and people should care because when that kind of thing happens, you, you diminish the seriousness of any prosecutions and you diminish the seriousness of the meaning of the law itself. Because if it doesn't apply to the president's friends, why should it apply to anyone? And if they're only going to use it to be punitive, then nobody's safe. So in these cases, you've got Manafort. He's trying to help him out, trying to make sure that he doesn't go to Rikers Island. You've got Flynn, where first, after two instances where he pled guilty in court, as we've gone over multiple times on this show, uh, he'd step in and try to shut down the entire prosecution. And it even went so far as the judge saying, I don't understand this. He's already c- pled guilty. I want, I think I should be sentencing this guy. It went up on appeal. We had a show where we talked about that. And, you know, now it all finally uh, comes to a halt because he's given a pardon. So the rest of it end, ends up being rendered moot. But that was a serious perversion of the administration of justice in the first place, stepping in and trying to destroy an FBI investigation into someone who pled guilty to lying to the FBI. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, if they cared at all about whether or not this was actually a law and order presidency, then, then they'd care whether or not people were concerned that if they lied to the FBI, that would be breaking the law. I mean, ultimately, isn't that undercutting the effectiveness of the FBI? Yes. <laughs> if you care about law and order, you should care about and you should yeah. try to be consistent with Otherwise, it will lose its efficacy because the people will start to think it's a corrupt institution. And, you know, the same thing applies to Roger Stone because there they tried to mess around with his his sentence. And you had several serious, thoughtful career prosecutors resign because Barr undercut them and recommended a lighter and said, you know, we're withdrawing and throwing out your sentencing memo that you put together, which is, you know, it's a serious thing. It's a serious official filing with a federal court pulled it off the table and sent in something asking for the judge to softball this the sentencing and and recommend basically a slap on the wrist for someone again who is running afoul of federal law at the end of the day that's you know it's destroying the the entirety of the entire system so um while it may seem kind of clownish because of the nature of the president's group of cronies that have been surrounded that he's been surrounded himself with um it's still serious stuff. It doesn't matter how goofy these guys are. Or even if you think, well, he wouldn't have served that long of a sentence anyway because he's an older man or something like that. It still destroys. No, life. it's absolutely. It was just all a part of the sort of the uh, lawlessness of the Trump uh, years. And, and, and it's that's a great line. Uh, giving credit, a shout out to Putin. Uh, favors for my friends and justice for my uh, uh 
uh, enemies. And uh, that reminds me of that old line. It's uh, a socialism for the rich, capitalism for everyone else. Uh, it's the same sort of principle there. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Double standards. You know, if you're friends with the president, it's like a mobster mentality. If you stay loyal to one man, uh, he will use his power to protect you. It does. If so you cover up his crimes, then he'll pardon you. And I don't know how any, I know there was a, I don't know, significant number of Republicans, but there was maybe two to 3% of Republicans who just couldn't tolerate uh, but Trump. But there's something to keep in mind, uh, Jim, as we go forward. We say this all the time. Uh, MAGA controls the Republican Party and Trump controls MAGA. And uh, so I would say 45% of the public would disagree with you on every single one of these points that you're making. At the same time that they would be evoking the principles that you are articulating when it serves a purpose against a Democrat, as is happening here in Illinois all the time. Uh, So, yeah, it's very important. Uh, Here's one on the list that I had completely forgotten. There's so much wrongdoing uh, by Barr. Initiated the Durham investigation. Help help jog memories of listeners with that one, Jim. Yeah, this was, um, this was, this is like a, it served all purposes. So it satisfied the MAGA base. It satisfied Donald Trump's need to discredit all of the investigations that, that, that were being done into him in the first place. Mm -hmm. But it also served to create some kind of a distraction and at least the appearance that Democrats were, were either presently or had previously done something improper. So if people recall, while Trump was running for president, this was actually what led to the Mueller investigation. Uh, there were all kinds of contacts with Russian people, Russian agents, Russian emissaries, uh, conduits through which they were, they were having conversations. Konstantin Kalemnik, that was a name uh, to whom they were Paul Manafort, or I think it was Manafort, was passing uh, information about what was about polling information. That was one of the things that, that the FBI was watching happen. So while Barack Obama was still president, while it was 2016 and the, and the Trump administration was involved in all these things, they were investigating Trump and his uh, campaign because there were these questionable connections to a foreign country. It doesn't look right when you're running for, for, for president of the United States and you've got connections to not just foreigners, but people who are involved in the intelligence services of foreign countries, especially if it's Russia. So that was the nature of the, what they called crossfire hurricane, which was the investigation into Trump while he was still a candidate. He won the election and after he was sworn in, he started tweeting and screaming, yelling about how his wires were tapped and why, and that he was being illegally investigated and that it was a coup, which by the way, never made sense because you can't have a coup if somebody hasn't gotten into the office yet, but that's not really, I mean, that point would be lost on Mr. Trump, but uh, he was of course mad about it. And that was one of the things that led to the suspicion of general Flynn, which led to, Flynn being let go, which led to Trump talking to Comey about dropping the investigation on yeah. Flynn. I mean, all these things are all connected to each other. So in addition to the public screaming and yelling and all the malfeasance with respect to uh, Jim Comey and the FBI, Trump also demanded, and I think was the one who requested, this investigation be done 
to investigate the investigators, to look yeah. into the origins of the Mueller investigation. So uh, Bill Barr appointed John Durham, a United States attorney, to look into who knows what. I mean, it's not, not you and I probably couldn't understand whatever the, uh, you know, chalkboard diagram of, of weird conspiracy theories that would justify that somehow uh, Obama and his investigators were doing anything wrong. But that has been a fixation of the president since day one. So Barr took it a step further and actually tried to initiate this investigation. And at the end of the day, throughout September and October, he was demanding that Bill Barr release something. He kept tweeting about how this was going to be, this information was forthcoming. There's going to be this, they're going to drop this big bombshell. It'll be the October surprise about how the investigators were the ones who were corrupt. You know, at some point in time, a very highly regarded uh, United States assistant attorney, Nora Danahy was her name, was like the assistant to John Durham in this investigation. A career person at the, at the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office resigned over what was going on. But even, even after all that, at the end of the day, Durham released nothing. You know, and now he's, now he's resigned from, from uh, being in charge of this supposed investigation. Yeah. And nothing ever happened. So, you know, you look at it, and it, it did accomplish the goal of allowing Trump to have a talking point about an investigation. Also, you know, that's authoritarianism 101, just creating a phony investigation just to be able to talk about it. And, but for some reason, I can tell you at least what my theory would be, they still couldn't even come up with something. They couldn't even phony up mm -hmm. an actual report or a prosecution to effectuate this in some way. Um, but Barr still signed off on it, and he still created it. So it, it had very dubious foundations. And then the fact that it ultimately yield not, yielded nothing really proves the point that there wasn't anything wrong. We shouldn't have to really prove that point. But it's just another example of why this has just been a train wreck of a, an attorney general. Yeah, and he was bowing to the whims of Trump uh, and helping create the notion that there was something outrageous uh, going on that victimized Trump. Right. When in fact, he was the victim of nothing except for his own excesses. Uh, and so it feeds the um, the MAGA uh, population that just wants to believe that Trump is uh, the innocent victim. Of that. Although the word, as though the word innocent could ever apply to anything Donald Trump does, uh, that Donald Trump is himself the innocent victim of a deep state insurrection. All right, we're going to close uh, with this final point, which is a, kind of a flip-flop. And it's just a perfect uh, to come out of your discussion of the Durham investigation. Because in the case of the Durham investigation, uh, Barr bent over backwards to f give credence to the notion that somehow or other uh, Donald Trump was the victim of shenanigans perpetrated by the Obama administration, the outgoing Obama administration. Now we're coming to the end of the Donald Trump presidency. He was decisively defeated at the polls uh, to, by Joe Biden. And ever since then, he's been crying like a little baby, Jim Coogan, saying that the, he was the victim. Another Once again, he's the victim of fraud. An election was stolen from him. William Barr, at this moment, has sort of deviated from his entire, what is it, two-year tenure as Donald Trump's chief legal enabler. 
he's deviated from it from to say, well, I don't see evidence of fraud that would justify having a special prosecutor. Similarly, I don't see evidence of fraud that would justify having a special prosecutor into Hunter Biden's business dealings. So what the heck is going on in your humble opinion, Jim Coogan, with Bill Barr? Is uh, he just trying to get back in good with the Washington establishment to get a nice job? Uh, you know, is his conscience suddenly awoken? What game is he playing? It's, I think it's probably the last one. I think his, his, his conscience has finally gotten the best of him. Well, no, Ben, I, yeah. look, it's really hard to understand. Let me put it this way. The very simple explanation that seems to be transparent on its face is exactly what you just said, that now that it's convenient, now that he can leave, he's either accomplished whatever he wanted to accomplish or set in motion anything that he hasn't yet accomplished. Now that he can do that, he wants to just reestablish his reputation, that he's not a crazy MAGA enabler, that he himself um, doesn't subscribe to all of Donald Trump's perverse theories about the law or the general theory that the law doesn't apply to Donald Trump, uh, and that he wants to return to the D.C. elite cocktail circuit and the elite legal circles of Washington, D.C., and, and um, be accepted in those uh, conversations and among those folks. It seems too obvious because I don't really, because, I mean, it, it just kind of fits too neatly. That's the thing that kind of bothers me about it. You know, here he is right when the time comes uh, trying to save face and, and and look at all the mainstream Democrats in D.C. and say, look, see, I'm not I'm not going to support crazy investigations into uh, seizing voting machines and, and abusing powers through through the, the Homeland Security or the Department of Justice going around and investigating what's happened. There's no real evidence of any of that stuff. I mean, it seems to fit too neatly that that's the explanation at this point. Um, and underneath it all, does that mean that he has gotten promises from the president about his own legal culpability? Does it mean that he's he knows he's secured some kind of a pardon or something? Um, I mean, this brings us back full circle to where he was at Christmas time in two thousand in nineteen ninety two. That he had already advised one president to pardon whoever he has to pardon to insulate himself and to shut down any investigations into obvious criminality. Um, And I would have, I would believe that there are things that have happened that he's been involved in that he would be the subject or could be the subject of investigations in the future. So is he comfortable with it now because he already has some other leverage over the president that he can, because that's a surprise to me. How can he break with the president publicly and still be assured that he'll be taken care of on the back end. Yes. Because I have to imagine that he's worried about some kind of culpability coming out of this uh, for something that he's done. Or he's covered himself properly, and he isn't worried about it, and now that he's achieved the principal goals of undermining any investigation into a, a Republican president and set the predicate for uh, future Republican presidents to continue to expand their executive power, and... Uh, ran interference while Trump inserted three justices on the Supreme Court and dozens and dozens of justices on appellate and D.C. circuit courts. Um, maybe, his, maybe that's all it really amounts to. His work is done, and, uh, and he doesn't want to be seen as a pariah and, uh, and a lunatic because no serious lawyer would 
adopt any of the, the legal stances that the president is taking right now. Yeah, you couldn't even get Brett Kavanaugh to sign on to uh, the uh, Texas case. Uh, so, uh, by the way, I'll just point this out. Uh, it's not over till it's over. Jeffrey Rosen will replace him. That's right. Uh, we'll we'll see if Jeffrey Rosen appoints uh, a special prize. We still got uh, what is it? Four weeks is that what we've left of the Trump of the Trump presidency? So there's plenty of time for Jeffrey Rosen and. If that happens, we're bringing you right back to the show, Jim, to talk about the <laughs> ultimate, the ultimate in sleazy uh, machinations where Barr steps down and his crony does the dirty work. Uh, Maybe that's a setup, Ben. I mean, it could be. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't pretend to believe. Well, I certainly don't pretend to know. And I also would put nothing past the way that this operation has been run for the last four years. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're pretty much run out of time for our discussion, but I just have to say one thing. Uh, I can see Jim. He can't see me, but that my, as everybody knows, my resolution for the new year is to get a new monitor where I have a camera. So when we do these Google meets, I could see. Uh, but I, the thing that I've been can't get over, Jim, in the background uh, of, over your shoulder is a framed photo. And it looks I'm far away. It looks like my beloved Chicago White Sox celebrating the World Series in 2005. Is my eyesight correct? And is that what that is? Your eyes are pretty good, or the, the camera resolution is pretty good. Yeah, now you got it. That's a, uh, that is the on-the-field celebration at what I think was, what was it called at the time? Whatever the field was in Houston. It might still have been Enron Field at the time. I I'm think not. it was Enron. <laughs> yeah, speaking of sleazy corporate um, malfeasance. <laughs> yes, Enron. That's how I began the show, uh, corporate malfeasance. But um, – Yes, I think it was already Minute Maid Park by then. They might have already gotten in trouble. They might have. That would have been two thousand and five. Yeah, you could correct. Uh, But uh, were you at that game? It was a glorious night. No, no, no. I did actually get. I was lucky enough to go to Game One here in Chicago, but uh, I watched that one on TV since it was down in Houston. I did not know you were a White Sox fan. Somehow that eluded me, or if you did tell me, I forgot. Mask. It's actually a White Sox mask. Oh my goodness, he's got a White Sox. (laughs) I. you probably know this because I talk about it all the time. Uh, I never saw a reason to pick one team or the other. So I dutifully followed the White Sox and the Cubs pretty much my whole life. Uh, my heart broken by equal opportunity, break heartbreakers, the White Sox and the Cubs. I could tell you years in which each one of them, sometimes it was the same year. 77 was a particularly gruesome year. The White Sox, I thought we're going to win the division with the Hitman, and then they blew it. I thought the Cubs, at one point, I think there were 25 games over the 500 mark. They blew it. So sometimes it's a twofer in the same year. But I'm through with the Cubs as long as the Ricketts owns them. So I'm now totally a White Sox fan. And one thing I'm really looking forward to, Jim, I put this in the reader, if this pandemic passes, getting back to a White Sox game, I'm looking forward to that. Just seeing that picture in the background made me kind of miss going to White Sox games. Well, if I could, if you can indulge me for one more moment, the the guy who introduced me to the White Sox a long time ago, uh, unfortunately, I actually lost my father this year. I know you guys actually both did too. Yes, that was my initiation of being a White Sox fan in the first place. So, I guess that's a good note to leave it on for our last show of 2020. Yes, very good. Uh, shout out to your father. He passed on a great tradition. Uh, the Chicago Whites. Tony, by the way, Larusa, apologize. I don't know if you saw this in the Sun Times. He apologized. Yeah. I'm willing to forgive and forget uh, and move on. I'm really hoping the White Sox can bring us some uh, 
uh, some fun this summer. I hope I hope we'll be able to go back to games. All right, Jim, have a great Christmas and New Year's. We'll talk to you in the New Year, all right? All my best to you guys. All right, that's the great Jim Coogan, good friend of the Ben Jarofsky Show. Coogan, Coogan, come on! <laughs> We're going to have to have, uh, when this pandemic passes, a Ben Jarofsky show uh, field trip to a White Sox game. Yes, we'll see you all in 2025. (laughs) Don't forget El Dragon, another huge White Sox fan on our show. Play ball. Uh, Play ball. Now, we were talking about uh, the background there of uh, Coogan's office. I also, I was going to bring it up, but uh, I also noticed a bobblehead back there. Uh, Any idea as to who that bobblehead was? was, You saw that too, huh? Yeah, I saw it too. I couldn't tell. Uh, well, let's speculate. Let's speculate. Any idea? <laughs> Who do you think that bobblehead was there? Uh, that bobblehead is William Barr, Bill Barr, former Attorney General. Oh, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> I have no idea. It could be Bert. Yeah, I have a bobblehead of the former Alderman Bert somewhere in this room. I was trying to stare at it, but I looked like a weirdo, like just trying to look right into the computer. You know, I was trying that. Uh, I, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I think it's a Jim Coogan bobblehead. I think he has a bobblehead of uh, himself. Oh, it could be. It could be a Jim Coogan. We can bobblehead. give those away, Jim. We can give those away. That could be a prize. Are there more in your closet or something? <laughs> you, you know what? I'm looking behind me to see what I have behind me because when I get my camera, and that's my resolution, okay? <laughs> well, you're hyping up this camera. You better follow through. I'm definitely going to get it. I really want it's just uh, It just makes the uh, conversation much more enjoyable if I could see the person <laughs> I'm talking to and they could see. Yeah, hey. that, makes, that makes sense. All right, I want to thank uh, Jim Coogan. Outstanding job, as he always does. And, uh, of course, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Jim Coogan and the entire 2005 Chicago White Sox team will tell you, back home in Alton, <laughs> they call him Dr. D. Give us a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. That's correct.